Welcome back to episode five of Sharing the Magic, a show dedicated to all things Disney. I'm Annie, and I'd like you to join us as we explore this magical world together. Whether you're a diehard Disney fan or just a casual visitor, this podcast is for anyone who could use a little extra pixie dust. Tonight, we have an awesome guest whose one little spark um, took us right into the world of imagination back in the 80s. But before we introduce him, let's introduce the rest of our amazing cast. First up, our ghost host, Barry, is back. Barry, how are you? I am glad to be back. Um, I was out uh, last week, but ready to rock it tonight. Woo, so glad to have you back, Barry. Next up, she is rebel scum and proud Tara. Tara, what's going on? I'm doing great, Annie, and I'm excited to talk to Ron tonight. I know, I'm so excited. Yeah. Okay, I'm ready. I feel like I'm going to cry. I'm really excited. Um, next up is everyone's favorite Disney dad, Matt. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How's everyone tonight? Great. All right. And then she's the real lady, Divine Lindsay. Lindsay, what's going on? Hey, Annie, I'm doing great. I'm so excited for tonight to talk to Ron. My imagination is running wild. Oh, she threw that little imagination pinch. Look at her plug in. <laughs> We're starting already. <laughs> Last but certainly not least, we have our host for tonight, the goofy dupe himself, Jeff. Jeff, yeah, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Uh, Barry is here as well. And so we're we're kind of going to tag team the host thing. I, I would love to get Barry back in the seat tonight. But uh, for the goofy dupe, here we go. Orge. Hi, Ron. It's nice to see you. <laughs> well, I hope you have a good time tonight. And I'm yearning for some learnings. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thank you, Ron. <laughs> now, I guess we'll introduce our guest, Ron Schneider. We're so, so excited to have him on. He was the OG Dreamfinder at Epcot back in the mm-hmm. 80s. Mm-hmm. If you've been there, you know how it was. <laughs> Ron, please you, introduce yourself. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here tonight. Um, yeah, I am uh, was the original Dreamfinder. I was actually worked 40 years in theme parks uh, for Disney, Universal, Six Flags, uh, lots of themed restaurants. Uh, it was my life's work, and uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to have been able to do it. And if you remember the Dreamfinder, you're probably as old as I am. I know I saw Lindsay today and we were discussing the ride and I told her, I don't think I ever saw the Dreamfinder version because I'm the young and other group. I'm the baby. I think I went the first time in 2001 and it switched over in 2002 and we only went to Magic Kingdom that time. But I know the song word for word. I know who the <laughs> Dreamfinder is. It's very, very, very excited to reach night. Um, usually we like to start from the beginning. So Ron, could you kind of give us a background of how you got to be the Dreamfinder? Like how that came about for you? Well, we go, we gotta go back. I was born in uh, Los Angeles, California in 1952, uh, which meant that I was about two and a half years old the first time I visited Disneyland, which is the day that it first opened to the public. And uh, I have vague, vague memories of that uh, visit. Um, grew up in Southern California, and my my best friends were the television hosts, the kid show hosts on uh, local TV. Uh, so I had Skipper Frank and uh, Tom Hatton and Engineer Bill, Sheriff John, Hobo Kelly. Uh, they all talked to me through their television set. 
and uh, kind of planted the seed for me to want to be a performer. Uh, I started acting uh, when I was about uh, seven, I think. Um, not professionally, just doing local local shows down at the park. The first role I ever played was Sneezy, as a matter of fact, uh, in an outdoor production of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Um, so I grew up uh, going to do the own theater. I got hooked on magic and puppetry and ventriloquism and uh, just kind of flailed at that uh, very amateurishly. <laughs> until I got into the Los Angeles County School District and uh, we was doing, they were doing school shows and I got myself into the school shows. It took me a couple of years, but I made it. And uh, that's when I realized that's exactly where I needed to be was up on the stage. So uh, I started really in earnest acting when I was about uh, 14. And um, that uh, I knew I know that's where I wanted to go. But I didn't. I wasn't sure what what route I was going to take, which part of show business I was aiming for. Uh, then, in 1966, Walt Disney passed away, and it just struck me what a tremendous influence he'd been on my life. And the next time I was at Disneyland, I was looking around and I realized, oh my God, this is a giant stage, and we're all on the stage, and we are the show. And I want to be a part of this. So that's when I decided that I was going to do uh, work at theme parks. Uh, I saw a show in 1970 called The Golden Horseshoe Review in Frontierland. The show had been running at that point for 15 years. And uh, I saw this comic on stage, Wally Bogue, same fellow who inspired Steve Martin to get into comedy. And I saw Wally Bogue on stage doing this comedy routines. And I said, I want that job. So I, uh, I was, was at that point, I was, I, was, uh, what, I was 18, I was 18, got my first theme park job. Uh, I was doing wardrobe issue for the Christmas parade in 1970. Um, but I was at Disneyland. I was working at Disneyland. I was working backstage at a giant circus tent handing out sweaty costumes uh, but I was I was employed. I was employed at Disneyland. I got my first check. Um, the second summer uh, I came along. I was I was at Magic Mountain, Magic Mountain theme park, amusement park, opened up just north of Los Angeles, and I got my first ride operator's job. I was uh, worked on the Autopia. They call it the Grand Prix, but it's the Autopia. Uh, that opened in 1971, and the cars that we were using were uh, the same ones that were being used at Walt Disney World in 1971, made by the same manufacturer. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I got to hang out there in the, in the ride. And um, it, was, it, was not, it was not glamorous by any means, but what happened was that um, this fella came through one day. I used, I used to love to, to man the turnstile. I'd be standing up front putting people on numbers first to, to get on the, on the, in the cars. This fella came through one day and put a microphone by the turnstile. And that was it. I was, I was gone. I sp spent all my time standing at that microphone talking a mile a minute. Uh, first I was using material from the golden horseshoe and the jungle cruise and all those other places that I knew so well. But, um, I eventually started developing my own material and I started working overtime in other attractions around the park. Uh, 
1972, I was I was over at the animal farm working with wild animals, and uh, especially a full-grown African lion by the name of Major. Uh, there's uh, quite a bit about him in my book. You should yes. read about. It. <laughs> um, so I had this, I spent that first summer at uh, Magic Mountain, and uh, got out of there. And I got my first uh, themed restaurant job, playing Henry VIII at 1520 AD Medieval Restaurant, <laughs> uh, which was a very, very, very bawdy show in La Hollywood. Uh, they uh, we, they were just expanding, and I got I trained uh, at California in uh, Beverly Hills, but they wound up sending me to San, to, to uh, San Diego, and I wound up uh, as the king of San Diego for about a year and a half. Um, <laughs> Got out of got out of there and uh, wound up going to college at um, Los Angeles City College Theater Department. They had a wonderful theater department. A bunch of my friends were there, and uh, they kind of I aced, aced me in. And all this time, I was still doing shows at the various schools and amateur productions here and there. But uh, all the time, in the back of my mind, there was Wally Bogue and the Golden Horseshoe Review, and I knew that's where I wanted to be. So I would. I got to college. Got to Los Angeles City College. I was there for three years uh, as a student, one year on staff, and uh, at the end of that, it got me to. Oh, I spent uh, some time also at Universal Studios in Hollywood as a yeah. Universal Studios tour guide. Back when the tour was uh, two and a half hours long, it wasn't. There was no video on the tour. It was just just the guide talking, and I loved that job. It was another dream job for me. <clears throat> so. Ron, when uh, when were you in uh, Universal? What what years? What uh, seventy six, seventy six, seventy seven. Okay, yeah, I was I was still in college at the time, and nice. uh, yeah, I went to they had a they had a job fair at uh, City College, and I went and there was a table set up for Universal Studios, and I said to the guy, I said, hey, "Listen, I'm i I've always wanted to do this," yeah. and the guy said, "Okay, you're hired." <laughs> I didn't. I didn't need a second interview. They put me right out there, yeah. and uh, it was a it was a wonderful, wonderful time. You met a lot of terrific people. The tour guides were yeah. a wild bunch of characters. That's why I uh, asked. I bet it was. I bet it was a lot of fun. Yeah, the the break room. Right, we, we, we had all these old, old, old couches and <laughs> vending machines, and we all sat in there waiting to be called out on the tours. Uh, I met uh, my best one of my best friends in the world. Uh, Jeff Palmer was a tour guide there. It turns out at the time that he had uh, been working at Disneyland for years at that time. And he had done just about every job at Disneyland that I would ever want to do, except the Golden Horseshoe Review. Oh. Um, but uh, we we hooked up. And uh, so I, at the end of that uh, 10 years, 19, 1980, uh, I was just finishing up college. And um, Six Flags Magic Mountain was opening up a new crafts village called Spillican Corners. They were looking for a traveling med- medicine man, a sp- uh, guy to go out and sell bogus medicine, uh, kind of like Harold Hill, who was one of my biggest inspirations growing up. And uh, they uh, they hired me, and I wound up going out on the street at Magic Mountain. I wound up there for about uh, four years, selling Grandma Spillican's Herbal Cure and Indian Elixir. Cures <laughs> headache, earache, toothache, direct, to, to, headache, earache, toothache, toothache, neurology, corns, warts, bunions, calluses, skulls, skin infections, hangnails, rheumatism, arthritis, muscular aches and pains, heart and arteries, higher low blood pressure, and uh, did that for four years. 
Ron, I'm sold. How much is it? <laughs> I want. I want. I'll I'm a case. I'm already. I'm, unfortunately, I'm not permitted to sell this in this in this, <laughs> in this district. However, right. uh, if you if you buy a bottle, I'll give you this set of beautiful French postcards showing six uh, beautiful women in, 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 in drastic poses. Um, sold. <laughs> Uh, I did four years at um, at, at Magic Mountain, the Spillican Corners, and uh, that we were at the summer of nineteen eighty-five. I know nineteen seventy. I'm all right. Nineteen eighty-five. Yeah. Um, It was the twenty-fifth anniversary of Disneyland, and they were looking to cast a second showing, a second cast of the Golden Horseshoe Review. And I walked into the audition and I did my medicine pitch for him and I got the job. And uh, I was just hysterical. That's 10 years had passed where I'd taken all those jobs at Universal Studios and Six Flags and all the theme restaurants I'd worked. And uh, when I walked into the audition at Disneyland, I was, I was what they wanted. Um, I so I got hired on there, and I did uh, about two or two and a half years at the Golden Horseshoe. I worked on the 25th anniversary, which was an amazing event. <laughs> the um, uh, the end of uh, the summer of the summer of '82, uh, um, I attended a, a presentation at uh, the Disney University by Tony Baxter, who was talking about uh, careers at Wed Enterprises, as it was then known. And uh, he was talking now that this is back in the days when uh, before there was Internet. And when you talk to an Imagineer, they would tell you about what they were working on because they could do that then. They can't do that now. They can't. (laughs) Nope. Okay. I was like, okay, all right. All right. (laughs) They'll lose their their job. Um, Yeah. So he, he was talking about this attraction that he was working on at the time which was the journey into imagination for Epcot Center. And he held up a picture of Dreamfinder and Figment and said, this is going to be the only Disney character at Epcot Center. There's not going to be any Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, nothing. It's Dreamfinder and Figment. And I took one look at that picture, and it was exactly the same sensation I had when I saw Wally Bogue the first time. I said, this is what I got. This is for me. This is what I got to do. So I went to my boss and I said, listen, you're going to have this character strolling around? He said, yeah. I said, okay, I want to do the job. And by that time, I'd been in theme parks for 12 years and he knew me. And he said, okay, you got the job. And so in uh, September of 82, they moved me to Florida and I opened Epcot Center. I was there for uh, about uh, close to five years. Um when I got out of there, got into a lot of local theater at the same time. It was a very big theater town because we had all the talent from Disney and Universal yeah. coming up. And um, the, I did my five years there. Then I opened a theme restaurant in Kissimmee called Fort Liberty Wild West Dinner Show. Uh, I wrote and directed the show and uh, played, did the traveling salesman again. This time I was selling. You can't get away time. from that. <laughs> oh, listen, I I made I I got about altogether about eighteen years yeah. of work from this one bit. Wow. Uh, I did because I because I did the same. I I pitched uh, Pepsi Cola when I was at Disneyland, 
And, uh, and then at, at uh, Fort Liberty, I was pitching Grandma, uh, Grandma Gladstone's Herbal Cure and oh. Indian Elixir. So I, I milked that sucker for everything. <laughs> you milked it, yeah. I know, I'm sensing a theme. If you could be a traveling salesman and if they give you a microphone and you could talk however you well, want. Well, I mean, for you. And, and this is the thing, like, you know, Ron, you're, you're not, you weren't typecast, but you definitely have, when you're good at one thing, You'd be surprised when you're you're there's a difference between good and great. And when you're great at one sort of archetype, whatever it is, you know, mm-hmm. you're always going to have a job. And it, that's what it sounds like to me is that you got really, really great at one sort of, you know, n- character narrative and, and you and people are just hungry for it. Well, who, does, like who, who doesn't want elixir anyways? So. Exactly. <laughs> we all need it. Um, yeah, as a matter of fact, going back to uh, uh, 1962, yeah. uh, when uh, The Music Man, the movie The Music Man came out, and I saw Harold Hill, I saw Robert Preston as Harold Hill doing The Traveling Salesman, and I learned all the songs from that show, and that became my dream role. And so that mm-hmm. Traveling Salesman uh, led me uh, to become a fan of the uh, medicine pitches. I learned to uh, put one together for a college show I did and um, wound up uh, making a living from it. Uh, I was, uh, I read a book uh, back when I was a teenager called uh, how to be a smart ass. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it, and I was reading this book and I realized, Oh my God, this book is about what I've been doing for a living. Uh, the secret to being a smartass, I'll tell you this, um, is, 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 is always listen to, don't, don't listen to what people mean. Listen to what they actually say. If somebody comes up to you and asks, says, uh, do you have the time? You, then you answer uh, if you have the nerve or um, do, do, do you know what time it is? Yes, I do. And then you walk away. That's being a smartass. Mm-hmm. And I have spent my career being a smartass, I where I am, uh, uh, I take the things that people bring to me. Um, for example, when they're I'm talking, if I got figment on my arm, uh, they'll I'll, everything that anybody says to me, I'm going to twist it, mm-hmm. and uh, in that way, I communicate the the uh, concept of imagination. As I keep them guessing, I, I'm this way. I draw the guest into my, my experience. They have to play my game. Yeah. And this is the way that I was able to put the character out there. Instead of just posing for pictures and signing autographs, yeah. which could be very boring, um, I was able to get the guests to play the imagination game with me. That's and uh, so, and I mean, and this whole, the whole arc of my career hmm. goes back to my, my teenage years when I was uh, such a fan of Disneyland and I realized that I wanted to. I wanted to study it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make a put a made a make a course of study on uh, the uh, on the, that form of interactive theater where yeah. the performer and the guest are performing together. I do a I do a two man show, and the other person doesn't know their lines, and so I have to trick them into saying something that's going to be entertaining. Mm-hmm. And that's been the arc of my life. I've had a lot of jobs, as you can hear. Yeah. Uh, and I don't stay very long in the jobs yeah. um, because I learn what I want to learn. And then what happens generally is imagination and uh, uh, management changes. Yeah. And when management changes, very often 
the, the things that were with the old management get cast aside. Right. But that was fine with me. Uh, the longest time I ever spent in one job was in, uh, in, in Orlando. I worked at the um, Titanic, the exhibition. I was a historic character at Titanic, yeah. the exhibition. Yeah. And uh, I loved doing that. It was Again, I was talking for a solid hour, um, playing a character who really lived. And uh, I was able to draw the guests into imagining that they were on board Titanic. Oh, and uh, there's a, there's a lot more to that than just a, than just a lot of treading water because uh, they, they had the whole history of the ship and the construction yeah. and the people and like that. So I really got a kick out of that job. Hey, I so, ended up I ended up dying on the Titanic. That did was, you? That was sad. Yeah. Quite twice. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually on the Titanic, and then I did the um, the actual exhibit. And of course, everybody everybody. That I brought with me lives. I was the only one that died. <laughs> where did you do the Where did you do the exhibit? In Orlando. Oh yeah, did you? Oh, cool. Yep. Yep. <laughs> like story your life there, Barry. <laughs> I know. Oh, I thought you, for a moment I thought you were just I being comedic. Like, oh, I no, he actually, he actually, See, that's why it's perfect. I need that smart ass book for Christmas. <laughs> no, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try to track down that book too. I just thought. I think that's it. required reading for this podcast. Yeah. So, so Ron, um, I, uh, I love voice acting. I've, I've been for quite, but so voice acting for me is not something that I, you know, as a kid there were certain sort of things. My, my great, great, great cousin, whatever is Pat, but was Pat Buttram, you know? For, oh, yeah. And oh, so, nice. yeah, so well, evil sheriff, of not ma'am, you know, he, but just having that narrative in my own life as a kid really got me fascinated with voice acting. And we were talking about puppets. These are all puppets back here. Um, <laughs> and, but, you know, down the road, it, it was voice acting is something for me that it's not as if I found it, it sort of found me, you know, I, I started out as a kid doing Pat Buttram's voice. And then, you know, we, we just had Bill Farmer a, a couple of weeks back on, on the podcast. And, and I saw that, Oh, he's a sweetheart of a man. And it was just worse. You know, I study his voice. There's nobody in the world that studies his voice the way I study it. Like I just, mm-hmm. I am obsessed. Um, but when I heard your story, when I heard you talk about kind of the narrative, the story of your own life, it, you know, I, I got kind of like these vibes of, you know, you had this kind of calling on your own, your own life. You know, you, you're, you know, you, um, you know, you, you kind of had these moments where things were drawing you, like pulling you to it. And, and it, and it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost seems as if you kind of knew where your life story was going. And so I guess my question is, <laughs> I don't know what my question is. Maybe my <laughs> question is, <laughs> you know, maybe just talk more about that. But did you know, did you know, like early on, you know, this, this I'm I'm going to be this person and, and your draw to Disney, your draw to just, you know, to this creative space within the parks. Uh, was that something early on that you knew or did you kind of discover it along the way? I guess I'm trying to say. I had been inspired, like I say, by uh, Robert Preston and the music man and uh, magicians and puppeteers on law and television. Yeah. Uh, And um, I had recently seen Wally Bogue at the golden horseshoe. So that was in the back of my brain. Right. 
And there was a book called uh, Illusions by Richard Buck. Another book. And in, right and, and in, the, in, in the book, there's a page that has this, this quote on it. It says, uh, we are never given a dream without being given the power to make it true. You may have to work for it, however. And when I read that the first time, I started to cry because I knew it was true. I knew that they were saying, he was saying to me, you can do this. You, you want to be Wally Bogue? You'll be Wally Bogue. You want to work at the Disneyland? You'll work at Disneyland. And that, that's the bottom line on my life. And the, the, since retiring, my purpose in life is to share with people this, this thought. If you have a dream, you can make it come true. Now, I was always being drawn forward by uh, by things I've seen, judge the little jobs I had. I were I, I had to I worked for a while when uh, when I was in college. I worked processing damaged luggage and cutting reupholstery fabric for cars. I worked in the service center for Sears. I sold appliances for W T Grants. I had all those jobs, and then I got hired on as a ride operator at uh, or the wardrobe issue at Disneyland, and I said that's it. I'm not, I'm not doing anything that isn't where I'm not wearing a name tag. Yeah. And, uh, and like you say, I was being drawn yes. towards this, this, this image. Um, this is, I was lucky. I was very lucky. The timing of the time that I was born, the time that Disneyland opened, the time that magic mountain opened, the time that Epcot opened, everything timed out perfectly for me. Yeah. But uh, luck is a question of being re ready, prepared when the opportunity pops up. And um, I had, because I had spent those 10 years uh, being a fan of Wally Bogue, I was ready to be Wally Bogue. Because I had spent those 12 years uh, in theme parks, I was ready to be the dream finder. Yeah. Um, and I was ready, able to jump in and, uh, and fill a need. You know, when they're casting these things, they're, uh, they're looking for, they have an idea for a character. They're looking for somebody to fill that character, play that character. Yeah. And I was, I had made myself unwittingly, I made myself the, the answer to that problem where they were looking for a dream finder. And I showed up on the guys in the guy's office and said, uh, can, I, can I be dream finder? The guy said, okay, he didn't have to worry about that. Yeah. So I trained myself. I did, I did my own work on the character. Nobody trained me as, as dream finder. I trained myself. Yeah. I did all the work myself. Yeah. And uh, this is this is uh, true true all along, all through uh, my life. How did you do oh, that? How yeah. did you train yourself as as the dream finder? I, I find that interesting because I feel like I feel like nowadays you can't just pop into a school somewhere like, hey, can I be a dream finder? No, they don't. So it's kind of the Wild West in in that sort of way. So I'm always really interested with the like your like your story, for instance, where you kind of had to find your own way. And, and I always want to know more about that. Like, you know, how, <laughs> how did you find your own way? What, what are the, some of the things you did or, or behind the scenes that, that, uh, that prepared you for, for your accomplishments? The thing that I did right and wholly inadvertently was go to college. I worked at, worked at, I went to city college and I was a, not a good student at all in my life. And, uh, but city college, I just, I, it was that they had a great theater department and I didn't have to take any algebra. I didn't have to take history. 
All I had to do was show up and do plays. And, and, and that was my four years at City College. And I learned how to act. I learned how to take a script and develop a character and change to make the physical changes for like that. And what I did was to learn to do Dreamfinder was I took the character as a, as, as a script. Um, Tony Baxter, when I got hired on as Dreamfinder, I had one meeting with Tony Baxter and Barry Braverman where they um, told me about the background of Dreamfinder, how they created him, what purpose he was there to serve. And um, that's all I, that's all the training that I got. And then I went, I went, sat down. I said, okay, what do I want to do with this character? I was, I decided, I said I was going to apply everything I'd learned in college to, for the legitimate stage, but I'm going to apply it to this character and, and making this character come alive in the theme parks. And so uh, I knew immediately I, I was playing two characters. My left arm was dream was a figment and uh, my face was Dreamfinder. And I was going to play these two characters. And I knew that in order to make this work uh, from an acting standpoint, I had to be two characters. When the guests saw me, they had to see two different characters, two minds at work. Okay. And, uh, and I said, okay, how do I do that? And I sat down with the puppet and I realized that if I aim the puppet right, if, he, if, if, it may, if I could make it look like he was looking right at you, um, then it made him alive. Oh, so Whereas if he was just slightly off to one side, it, it was suddenly he was dead. He was looked like yeah. he was had glazed eyes. Yeah. And this is the secret of this is the secret of the Muppets. You know the the, Muppet, the Muppets, the, all the characters, they look like they're looking where they're looking. And, yeah. But and it's a question and it's a question of how do you learn to aim uh, your dra your dragon. And for me, yeah. I, the first thing I did was I took the puppet and I went on the employee bus at Epcot Center, and I would take the dragon on the bus. And I would aim him at people in the bus, and I would ask them, "Does it look like he's looking at you? Can you can you see? Can you see? Is he? You see both his eyes? Does it look like he's looking at you?" And I learned, without looking, learned how to aim him. Oh, I could. I didn't have to look at you. I knew where people were. And when you see pictures pictures of Dreamfinder uh, and Figment online, the old pictures of the yeah. back in. Uh, you can usually tell if it's me because Figment will be looking right into the camera. Oh. Whereas the other Dreamfinders, um, terrific guys, but they quite often their Figment was looking off to the side. Oh my God. Uh, look, look, looking like a little glazed expression in their face. The dots are so connecting. That was a, oh, yeah. no, the, the, well, the dots are connecting in my head. We just had Lee Cockerell on a, a few weeks yeah. ago. And he was talking about the power of just the simp the simplicity of eye contact uh, yeah it was profound i'm like well why i mean it's, it sounds like something that should be so you know basic but it's not so i'm just connecting those dots with you and talking about the puppets and why you know that the specialness the uniqueness <laughs> of of uh what makes these characters these these puppets come alive is you know there's these basic things that are just very very instilled and, and ingrained and meaningful to us such as eye contact and it just seems so anyways those dots just connected in my head 
The the other thing, the, the major thing I came upon was the dragon wasn't very well made. The puppet was not terribly well made. And if you if I held him in my left on my left arm, and I my held my arm arm comfortably forward, it looked like he was going to fall out of my arm. Whereas if I took painfully thrust my elbow forward and brought his head back, it looked like he, my false arm was supporting the dragon. <laughs> and so that's what I did with Figment at all times. When I think it was out online on, when we were out together, I had my arm painfully thrust forward. <laughs> and uh, since the, his jaw was not big enough to accommodate my thumb, I had to bend my thumb inside of his jaw to, to get it to fit. Yeah. And to this day, when I do that with my arm, I can feel him there. Oh. I guess like he's still, he's still with me. Um, and so that, that's like beautiful. That's <laughs> very this, yeah. this was this 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 type of thing uh is how I trained myself to do the dream finder was by putting myself in the guest shoes, looking at it from their point of view, and uh and constantly looking to make a character come alive for them and and for me as well. And they meant that I could enjoy myself. I wasn't just signing autographs and posing for pictures. I was playing uh, theater games with guests. And uh, it was just a wonderful way to make a living. Awesome. So, Ron, um been wonderful talking to you. I, I'm a talker, so I always like, I always hog the guests. That's just, I'm awful at that. So I'm going to turn it over to Barry. And not out of, Ron, not out of disrespect, I'm probably going to like, leave for a second just because i gotta but barry you wanna you wanna sure over and then this we got some other questions and yeah yeah so uh i'm, I'm gonna jump over to matt because he has a question uh matt uh where you at yeah. hi ron uh it's been a pleasure hearing your story um i so <laughs> When I joined the podcast and I was looking at the list of people who Barry has been reaching out to and was able to to get for us, your name jumped out at me um, because of my wife. So my wife is actually here with me. Uh, if I ask you a question before she gets the chance to say hello to you, I, I probably wouldn't be on the next episode. Um, <laughs> was kind enough to let me. Uh, invite her on so she will be on us in a second because I do you were just talking about something and Ron you can see us right because yes I can see you okay so I want to show you a picture uh, hopefully it'll it'll focus enough for you so that's uh, there you go that's my wife Crystal when she's about three or four years old which one is she <laughs> the one with the beard <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> um and as you were explaining um everything about what you used to do to hold that, you know, to hold figment. She was like a four-year-old nerd. She goes, I still don't believe it. She's like, it was, it was dream finder. It was figment. Uh, you and figment are her absolute favorite. I, I want to say character. She's going to cry. I, I want to say character, but almost not character. You're like real people to her. Um, you're the reason she loves Disney. You're the reason that she loves Disney and has made me love Disney. So she's very excited to come on and, and ask you a question. So I'm going to turn it over to her for a second so she could say hi, uh, if you don't mind. No, I have a problem. 
Hi, Mr. Ron. I'm so sad that I can't see you. <laughs> Hello there. <laughs> oh, you did. <laughs> I might cry. <laughs> um, so we do have a question for you. Yes, ma'am. Um, so Figment was big in the 90s. Um, mm -hmm. when I was a little girl, and then he kind of like disappeared from the parks. And a bunch of us fans rallied together and we brought him, we helped bring him back. Um, what does his return to the parks and him almost becoming an unofficial mascot to um, Epcot, like what does that mean to you? Do you wish it was both Dreamfinder and Figment? Are you satisfied that it's like just Figment? What's your take on that? Um real loaded a, question. It's a, it's a loaded question and I'll load it for you. Um, I had, uh, I left the job in 87. Okay. Uh, it was in 98 that they uh, took Dreamfinder and Figment out of the attraction. Um, and by that time, I, like I said, I was off working at, I was off working at, uh, I have, no, I finished at Universal Studios. I was working at uh, Titanic, I think at that time. The, um, so what am I saying? Hold on a second. It'll come back to me. Um, the, uh, the fellow who the fellow who was doing the character uh, is our number two guy. The fellow who was the second person hired as Steve Taylor, the wonderful fellow, uh, and he did it for fifteen years. So you think my arm was sore? Sore. <laughs> <laughs> he had the he had scars, and um, as uh, he. They they pulled Dreamfinder and Figment out, and um, the ride opened without uh, either one of them. And uh, nobody could understand why, uh, although I heard that uh, there was a Disney executive somewhere who, uh, in a private in a meeting, announced to everyone, "I hate that freaking dragon." Um, then uh, the fans, like you said, made, raised a stink. And uh, they brought Figment back. But the problem was the person who was writing for Figment uh, did not know Figment very well. Uh, and when he showed up in the new ride he, with, uh, with the guy from Monty Python, he showed up on the ride and the fellow said, no, no, not you. You go away. Well, you know, when you treat a character like that, they are a pest. They become a pest. It's like R2-D2 and C-3PO. C-3PO was a pest in Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> Why was he a pest? Because they treated him like a pest. And Han Solo said, shut him down. Would you shut him down? And suddenly this character that we love is now suddenly a pain in the butt. Uh, and so I saw what they did to Figment when they brought him back. And I realized, I God, I hope they don't bring back Dreamfinder. <laughs> because if they can't write for Figment, they're not going to be able to write for Dreamfinder. Yeah, no. um, I, you know, I, I, I took the character very seriously, which has always been a, a fault of mine. And I've had it pointed out to me several times in my years. But um, I took the character very seriously, obviously. Just listen to me go on about it here. Um, nobody else did. I think a lot of guys, wonderful guys did it and, and brought a lot of good stuff and they're wonderful, sweet people. But there's nobody took it as seriously as I did. 
And um, so I did not want them to bring back Dreamfinder. I was glad Figma was still around. Uh, the people who were really happy about that were the merchandise people. Because <laughs> Figma outsold Mickey Mouse. And every store where they were both being sold, Figma would outsell Mickey Mouse. And uh, I, I love the, the, the Figma uh, comic books that came out a couple of years ago. Those are wonderful because the fellow who did, who did those, Jim Zub, uh, he talked to Tony Baxter, who knew the character, had created the character, and uh, knew the backstory and knew the, what his purpose in, in, in the, what this world was. So um, I, I always felt that they didn't use Figment enough. They should have. He should have been an ambassador for Epcot much sooner than he was. They should have had Figment representative in World Showcase um, as a as a way to link the children to the different pavilions. As they didn't have that, they put the little craft villa, craft tables yeah. in the in the in the in the countries, and um, that was a, a feeble way of bringing the kids in. You but they had Figment. He was such a good looking character too. Like as far as like, you know, if you're talking marketing, you're tar- like talking that kind of realm. I, I just thought he was a, a very, I, th- I just felt like that was a very marketable. I don't know. I, th- I th- that, why, why wasn't that a staple? That's- he was very, he was very popular. One of the reasons he was very popular was uh, the color purple came into it. It yeah. came in big, but also he is not circles. Mickey Mouse is all circles. Yeah. The figment is angular. He's got these big scary eyes and he's got horns. And that's uh, that's uh, that's attractive to people, especially in contrast to Mickey Mouse, which is yeah. very wholesome and happy looking. Yeah. So um I, I hope that answers your question. Darla. No, it does. That's a very interesting statement. I think that's exactly what I was thinking. It was like, you know, he's very unique, very you know, the color purple, you just, you just said it, you know, there's, Mm -hmm. you don't, it just seemed to me like when I would, when I look at the character, like I'd buy that t-shirt, I'd buy that coffee mug. It's just something Mm -hmm. that, that I think is, it's a very attractive character. Jeff, you know, those t-shirts and all of those mugs. (laughs) I own probably 90% of the merchandise. (laughs) Stuff that I don't have is because I don't live in Florida. So unable to, you know, during special events like the food and wine festival or um the arts. Oh, I need to get down there for the arts festival just so I can see all the special um figment stuff down there. Um, but so I actually have a follow-up question because you did mention the comic books. Yeah. If you were able to reinvent the ride, would you, I'm such a fan of the original ride, but would you like to see the comic books brought into play or is there a different direction that you would like to see Figment go in the future? I'll tell you what I would put in that building. In the original ride, we meet up with the dream finder as he's flying along in the dream catching machine, collecting sparks of inspiration. Yes. Uh, I want to create a ride where the guests are flying the dream catching machine. They're collecting up, they're sucking up, like his dream finder was in the first one, they're sucking up sparks of inspiration. And then they take them, have it, and then they keep them in the idea bag. And then they wind up shooting them at different things through the rest of the ride and combining them into new things. 
very like, interactive ride. Yeah, it's very interactive. It's and the guests have 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 an creative input, and uh, I think it was it's a it gets back to what the ride was originally about, what the characters were originally were about. Um, I mean, I would I would love for them to bring the characters back because uh, I think that if they did, you know, Tony Baxter has said several times that he would come out of retirement to work on that on the redo of Imagination. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> keep them crossed, dear. Keep them crossed. <laughs> um, I got a question for you, young lady. Yes. Um, do you know, to trivia question, do you know what color figment was supposed to be originally? Oh, no, I don't. Blue? Nope. No? Red? No. <laughs> now, I'm just, yes. <laughs> now I'm just going to name color. Green. Oh. He was supposed to be green. Oh, Elliot's green. He can't be green. He would. Do you know? Do you know why he wasn't green? Why? Green is the color of Fuji film. Oh. And when they 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 first presented to uh, to uh, the Kodak people when they were first pitching the idea for a pavilion, uh, the Kodak people said, "Well, he can't be green," so they made him purple. And that particular color of purple, by the way, is uh, was invented by John Hench, who was the uh, art, big art, uh, arts guy with Imagineering. He came up with that with that purple, and that's uh, the color that they used. I love that color. It's my favorite color. Well, Me too. I do have to go, and I just wanted to thank you so much for letting me fangirl for a minute. My pleasure, darling. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so. Uh, somebody else you see yeah. <laughs> all right um so before i move, move on i just have uh one question um you know i i won't make you sing the wells fargo song from uh the music <laughs> because because not not too many people know that but um speaking of music uh you know the the theme song for the actual ride is such a powerful song um and you know, every time it comes on, uh, the inter inter interaction between Dreamfinder and Figment, it, it, it's just so it's just so um, personal as a as a character and a human being, or um, vice versa. So, uh, tell me, tell me, Ron, uh, what's your feeling about the the song, and uh, what um, what what do you think it it actually meant for the ride itself? Like everything the Sherman Brothers touch, it's, uh, it's a it's a great piece of work. Um, the uh, they approach these things um, like the same way I approach the playing the characters. They go to the central idea. They go to the theme of the of the attraction. And just as they created the the, the Tiki Room song, which is about the Tiki Room, it is a small world. This is about the 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 idea that we're all connected. They went back to the theme, and one little spark is uh, uh, is putting forth this central idea of the attraction that imagination is something that belongs to all of us. That everybody has this power, everybody has this strength. We use it every day when we pick out clothes to wear to school. That's that's using imagination. Um, so I always found the, the song terribly inspiring. Interesting uh, side note um, that you can sing. There's there's two songs 
that were fit perfectly with uh, one little spark. One of them is happy birthday. And the other one is it's small, it's a small world. You can sing the two the, the two songs at the same time, and it comes out, it times out perfectly. There's a there's a there's a video on YouTube of me riding through it's a small world at Disneyland, singing one little spark of imagination. I saw that um, video. Yeah. <laughs> I watched it today. <laughs> send send in the link. Good. <laughs> I will. Yeah, I think I think I found it. Okay. If I if I if I did indeed find it, I'll send it to you. I promise. Yeah. Cool. Um, so there's there there's that. So I think the, the song was a was a home run, as far as I'm concerned. It was uh, it's one of the things, the central ideas that uh, made that whole pavilion uh, resonate the way it uh, has. You know, I think one of the reasons that um, Dreamfinder and Figment are rem- remembered, especially Dreamfinder, are remembered at all. Because has been he's been a gone a long time, was because uh, of Tony Baxter. It had mm-hmm. nothing. It had nothing to do with what we did, strolling around, posing for pictures. But Tony Baxter created this attraction where Dreamfinder created Figment. We were there when Figment was born, and by the end of the ride, you identified with Figment. And the final room, you had Figment standing there in the center of this room with all these videos around him. Of things that he would do, he planned to do with his life. He was a mountain climber. He was a t- movie star. He was a deep sea diver, um, and uh, that was us. We could stand there in the middle of the room and realize I can do any one of these things because I have the power of imagination, and that uh, is why I think Dreamfinder and Figment has continued to resonate uh, in spite of the company, uh, and uh, I think we'll you know. Be remembered for a while yet. Ron, I sent you something. I maybe this isn't it, but check your link. I don't think this is it. I thought it, I thought it was. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you can we can we can check that. I I I I've, I've seen it. <laughs> okay, that's not it. All right. Sorry. All right. All right. Um Ryan, uh, why don't why don't you tell us about the, the book the book you wrote? Oh, well, um, I wrote a book <laughs> and called uh, From Dreamer to Dreamfinder, A Life and Lessons Learned in 40 Years Behind a Name Tag. Uh, to Jim Hill, the uh, doyen of all uh, us online Disney podcasters, um, heard me do a presentation on my career uh, back in the 25th anniversary of Epcot and um, came up to me afterwards and said, uh, that's a book. And so uh, I wound up writing a book about my 40 years. It's uh, it's not just about Dreamfinder. It's about just about everything that I've covered uh, in this talk tonight. Uh, it goes in much greater detail. I talk about my, my lion major and um, the years at, uh, at Universal Studios, what I learned there, uh, all the different lessons that I learned in my career. Um, and then it's also in, in the back, is a textbook about how to do what I did, how to write and create uh, theme park shows. Um, kind of, I didn't know if I wanted to do a textbook or a memoir, and so wound up being both. And uh, that's uh, that's available on on an Amazon. You go to Amazon.com and uh, do a search for Dreamfinder, and you'll find it. Uh, there's a paperback, hardcover. We got an audio book, nine hours of me talking. 
And, I listened uh, to it this week at work. You had me crying. And Kindle. I, just, I, got the, I got the I got the Kindle uh, version. And it's, and it's the Kindle too. Yeah. Um. So that yeah, that's you, you can get that uh, through a bell sub through Bamboo Forest Publishing, um, as my publisher. And uh, if you write to Bamboo Forest Publishing, uh, then they will uh, well you'll you end up getting an autographed copy uh, of of the book, and. Um, Matt, take notes for Crystal's birthday. <laughs> I see that. I see that. The other thing that I'd like to plug. <laughs> the other thing that I'd like to plug is my movie. Um, I did a film. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's a feature-length movie, motion picture, called "The Further Adventures of Walt's Frozen Head." <laughs> Barry has the question. We were talking about it. We we were both like, we would love to talk more about that so barry take it away because we we're both passionate about that project ron yeah so, so um I, I i know on twitter it was around for a while they were trying to get um people to get around it to actually want to do it and then you guys actually worked on it so uh tell us a little bit about the character you played and um uh the success it had and who was all in it and the all the nooks and cranny of it and, and by little but tell us a little, uh, Barry means tell us a lot. I want to know. I want to know everything. <laughs> fellow by the name of Benjamin Lancaster. He was a, a filmmaker student uh, here in uh, Central Florida. I think he went to UCF. And uh, he had this idea for a film. Um, he uh, wound up raising a bunch of money and got a bunch of people together and wrote a script. Uh, and it's a story of uh, a Disney employee who uh, goes down into the basement of the Magic Kingdom and stumbles across Walt Disney's frozen head, which they thaw out every year uh, for a couple of days, so he can check up, <laughs> can check up on how things are going with the with the company. And they they thaw him out for a few days, and they refreeze him, and then they bring him back. They bring him back, um, and uh, they so they shot this movie. But the problem was they didn't have anybody to play Walt Disney. That was they were going to put that in afterwards. So they shot everything in the film except Walt. They carried a box around with a blue screen in it, and um, they shot this this whole thing. And at the time that uh, I met Benjamin Lancaster, uh, I we both attended a, a Disney event um, in town here, uh, and um, he saw me for the first time. And I don't know how he. he got this idea because i had my beard and everything but uh he he they notified me they got they they i got an email at four o'clock in the morning one day and uh it said listen uh do you want to read for this part and i read what that was i read the script and i said lay in bed laughing laughing hysterically i could not stop laughing because the idea especially after all i've been through in my life you know, I've read just about every book there is on Walt Disney and uh, know the character pretty well. So uh, the idea of somebody asking me to play him. And the funny thing is, at the time that uh, the, I, the, the project came along, I was exactly 65 years old, which is the same age Walt was when he passed. So um, I put together an audition tape for him and uh, set it off. And we wound up shooting over two days. They wound up putting me into the film. Um, but the film was all finished. 
but they put me into the box, so to speak. <laughs> and the entire uh, movie, all of it, is on YouTube. If you do a search for Walt's frozen head, you will find it. And I play the head of Walt Disney. Uh, I am, and yeah, I'm going to watch it right away, like af right after this. And the concept, I just think, is so uh, whimsical. It's just mm -hmm. hilarious. I think it's so mm -hmm. funny. How did you prepare, like, you know, for? I mean, obviously, you love Walt, and so you've studied Walt. You know the quotes, but you know, um, like his mannerisms and things like that. Was there something that you, I, you know? Well, I, I remember I, I didn't have to worry about mannerisms. I was a frozen head. <laughs> oh, dang it! You're right. I mean, I did, I did do the eyebrow, but uh, <laughs> you could, but I didn't do it very well. Well, I mean, um, cadence, maybe cadence of the voice or things. You know, like you that. know, you know what I want. You know what I watched? Huh. I watched Tom Hanks, the, especially the scene at the end of uh, Saving um, Mr. Banks, yeah. where, um, yeah, great, great movie. And there's his final scene where he's uh, visiting um, her home in England. Uh, he sits and talks to her. I watched that over and over and over. I didn't need to watch any other thing of Walt um, because I, I'd been listening to him in my head since 1966 and uh, knew what he, how he talked and how he sounded. I did not try to imitate him. Um, I tried to get that temperament, that uh, warm sound that he had. Yeah. I changed a, yeah. couple, changed a couple of words here and there in the script to uh, better reflect him. Right. Uh, I put it, I put in a joke about them tearing out journey into imagination. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I, that's, that's really all the work I did was um, the script script was, was so good. Yeah. The, my, my part was so good. <laughs> and that's um, really interesting to me because, you know, nobody wants to do an impression. You want to capture a character. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that sounds like you did you did very well. Seems like, yeah. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm gonna watch it. I promise. I promise you. I'm gonna right after this. I'm gonna hunt it down on YouTube. And actually, I think we all probably will. I guarantee right. it. We're 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 like that. We're 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 kind of sick like that. Hey, yeah. uh, Ron. Um, a few of our uh, other uh, co-hosts have some questions for you. So we're gonna start with Lindsay. Lindsay, uh, do you have a question for Ron? Yeah, very do. So, Ron, so my husband had said to me when I first met him back in 2017, he was like, what part do you like? And I said, Epcot. I love Epcot. He says, what ride do you like? I said, Figment. He's like, really? And I'm like, obviously, I'm like, I wouldn't say just Figment. So after our first trip to Disney World together back in 2017, I come home and he has your book. And I was like, what's this? He's like, here, you can read up on it since you love Figment so much and the Dreamfinder. Ever since then, I've been a huge fan. I was truly oh. inspired. <laughs> I was uh, truly inspired by how at such a young age, you had an early interest in puppetry, magic and theater. Also, which I like um, when I went to school, I was doing theater and everything. Dreamfinder to me is vintage Epcot and nostalgia. I know you have written many scripts for Disney, like Mickey's Birthday Land. What are some scripts of that we might not know you've um, written? Um, Mickey's Birthday Land. I wrote the the, the train narration. 
for Mickey's Birthday Land Express. I'm very proud of that. Um, I, I I wrote a couple scripts for Disney, which uh, never really went anywhere. Um, but I what I wrote a, a proposal for a convention show. Um, for for uh, for the convention, it was a proposal for a convention. Uh, you'll never guess what it was about. What was it, it was about? about a, it was about a traveling medicine man, and um, <laughs> and they I I, tur- I turned the script in, and uh, Disney didn't want it, but <laughs> my boss from Epcot Center left Epcot Center and opened a themed dinner show in Kissimmee, and the show that I wrote for Disney wound up being the Fort Liberty Dinner Attraction. Um, Most of the writing that I did in theme parks, I wound up doing for Universal Studios, uh, because I went in, in, after I left uh, Titanic, I opened Universal Studios in Orlando. I was the creative director for the uh, Hollywood uh, lookalikes, the celebrity lookalikes. So I wrote, uh, I hired, trained, and wrote for the Blues Brothers, the Marx Brothers, Laurel and Hardy, W.C. Fields, Mae West, Marilyn Monroe. I wrote uh, special events for all the attractions, uh, dedication shows for the attractions. Um, I got to do uh, the whole depth and breadth of the theme park shows, all the stuff that I wanted to do uh, growing up. Uh, all, the, all those dreams came through, came true for those three years that I was at Universal Studios. And then, as it always does, management changed and uh, I was out on my ear. But uh, uh, I had a wonderful time and learned a lot. And I wound up from that. I went there. I wound up doing stand up comedy for a while. I did a little bit of writing there. But um, I did get to eventually write and direct and produce the kind of shows that I want to do. Yeah, I know I know you had did um a lot with Universal, which yeah. was pretty cool. I, I wish I could like Universal, but <laughs> I like Disney better. <laughs> we're not don't be a shill, Lindsay. Come on. We're we're gonna we're very, have to edit that out now. All the Universal fans who listen to a Disney podcast. There's not gonna do we're not no. gonna get sponsorship when you're hating on I have tried to get to Universal. My wife is kind of the same way. Like, oh, I love Disney. If I tell her, Ron, that you were so involved in Universal, she's going to let me go. Like, I could probably <laughs> this summer if I tell her that you were so involved with it. It's I, I might be going. I might be finally getting to go. Well, Ron, can, in- you, can, you, can you dress like the Dreamfinder in Universal? She'll definitely go then. <laughs> I, I don't dress up as Dreamfinder. I have other people who do that now. <laughs> um, the, the, the 1982, uh, no, sorry, 1992, I wrote uh, and directed a the Blues Brothers show, which oh, uh, is cool. still running at Universal Studios here in Orlando. It um, is. That's awesome. Now, it's been it's been redirected and rewritten. Um, Dozen a dozen times, so the show that as it is now is not the show that I wrote and directed. But if you go to the, the same spot, it's in, shows in the same spot, and uh, the setup that I created for it uh, is, is so good that uh, they can't get rid of it. <laughs> how is yours different? I'm just curious. Like you know, how did they I, change it? 
Um, I went back to, I, oh, see, when I did the lookalikes. Oh, okay. I I, I was in charge of the lookalikes. I was not one for just regurgitating what they did in the movies. There you go. My, my Beetlejuice didn't sing Harry Belafonte. My Beetlejuice sang other things that were completely inappropriate. Yeah. Um, the Blues Brothers did not um, treat everybody like uh, they treat they treated characters in the movie. Um, I I created uh, their original dialogue. So, yeah, they're new, and um, so the show that I did with the Blues Brothers um, had a plot, uh, had uh, audience participation, uh, had um, the characters, uh, the Dreamfinder, uh, 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 Jake and Elwood were. Um, were were sleazy and uh, and duplicitous and, <laughs> and everything that you know the characters are yeah. from the movie. yeah uh, from from, the, from living yeah. with them and loving them the yeah. characters now the characters now just through the songs right just through and, the songs and it kind of goes back to you know my one of my my pet peeve is I hate impressions I don't like so just to have like okay so you know, to take a movie and to kind of just copy and paste it to some sort of other genre that nobody wants. Nobody wants that. Like, I don't, I don't want that. People you know? who want that, the people who want that are the people who are in charge. Yeah. Who don't know, who don't know better. So they, I've heard. Yes. So I've heard. If, yes. If yes. We're going to have, if we're going to have Lucy walking around in the park, she needs to carry a bottle of Vitamita Vegemin. Uh act drunk when <laughs> right. i got hired out at universal studios we, the way i got the job as uh, a friend of mine uh, was working there at the time he was in charge of the the uh, animated characters and uh he contacted me and said listen um we i'd like you to do a proposal for what we might do with the celebrity lookalikes mm. and um and i turned in this proposal where i said listen instead of having them regurgitate the characters the way they do though everyone knows them have them live today. Have them treat the guests the way that they treated people in their films mm -hmm. and give the guests that experience of being insulted by W.C. Fields and assaulted by the Marx Brothers right. and uh, and entertained by Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. And um, and that's how I got the job was by, by doing those, those kind of characters in that way. And when I hired my people, um, it's just like doing Dreamfinder. When I created the Dreamfinder, uh, I hired I hired my people. The first thing I did was I wrote an original script for the Blues Brothers. I wrote an original script for Laura Original, Hardy. yeah. I wrote an original script for the Marx Brothers, and um, so they then could come at it without regurgitating the films. They were able to look at it and send. Get they gave them the idea that these characters are going to be alive today. Hmm. Yeah. All right, Annie, Annie, do you have a question? I do. I want to bring us back to when you just said uh, you have other people put on the Dreamfinder costume for you. Um, because one of my favorite parts of your book that had me crying at my desk in the office this week was when you were talking about the last time you put on the outfit, or I don't know if it was the last time, but the last time from your book that you put on the outfit and D23, and they had you come out, and and you said you were amazed that everyone kind of gasped, like just the workers in the dress rehearsal. Like that's insane to me. Like that's, that's the impact that you have on people. And that's going to be amazing. 
And I'm just wondering if you have any other special moments like that or fan interactions that have just like stuck with you through the years like that one. Okay, everybody, if, if, you've, if you've ever listened to other interviews with me, I told this story that time too. I'm going to tell it again now. Okay. Because it's the, it's the story. And, it, you, and you read this story in the book. Yes. Um, I was uh, coming off of a set as Dreamfinder and um, heading towards my dressing room mm-hmm. and broke through this crowd. And there was this little African-American child, maybe about uh, six Six years old, uh, looking up at me as he says, I'm walking by. There are no other kids around, so I figure I can stop and talk to the kid. And uh, I, so I kneel down and I introduce him to my arm. And um, I just uh, we talked for a while. And finally, I stood up and I said, well, I got to go now. Goodbye. And he looks at me and he goes, bye-bye, Jesus. <laughs> goodbye, <Wow>. Jesus. <laughs> goodbye, Jesus. I stood there. I couldn't move and nobody moved. We all, the guy, all this crowd standing around just left. And, and I could just imagine the kid when he got home he says, yeah, I, I met him. He has two heads and he called me by my name. Oh. Uh, so that, oh my God. That, that's that's the, wow. the the class the classic story. I met Michael Jackson, uh, which was which was exciting, and I met a couple of my heroes. Uh, but um, wait, 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 wait who, who else were your heroes? Who did you meet? I got uh, the magician Mark. Magician Mark Wilson used to be when I was a when I was a very 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 young kid. Uh, he had a, a show on television called The Magic Land of Alakazam, and he was one of my heroes. I, one day I was out in front of the Imagination Pavilion. And I suddenly realized that oh, this guy over here looking at me is Mark Wilson. And um, and the great thing was he didn't see me notice him. So Figman noticed him first and uh-huh. had to call my call my attention to him being there. Um, uh-huh. I met I got to meet Red Skelton. Oh, um, my goodness. Uh, yeah. And uh, Jimmy Nelson, who you won't know. Um uh, I, I was, uh, was Herschel Walker. I had my picture taken with Herschel Walker. <laughs> yeah, we're yeah, Cowboys yeah. fans, so yeah, there's a, there's a few of us. We are Cowboys fans. Sorry, sorry. I, we <laughs> we talk, at the, please edit that. Mike, we my father in, both has owned me if you say that. <laughs> we we were in uh, doing personal appearances in Miami Beach. In 1982, and uh, then he was playing in the uh, Orange Bowl, mm. and so we had a picture taken together. Cool, that's yeah. a lot of fun. Oh man, awesome. have you ever um, have you ever been starstruck? Have you? Is there somebody that you've met that's just like I? I, I like to. I love to ask this question because there's been people that I've met along my own journey where, you know, I thought I would be starstruck, but I'm not. I'm like, oh, there's that's just another person. That's that's a human being. And then there's people that I thought, oh no, I'll just talk to him like a regular person. Bill Farmer is one of them. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I'm a babbling moron. <laughs> and so have you ever had, you know, in, in your your own journey, you've clearly met a lot of wonderful people. You know, what what was that like for you? Have you ever met somebody that just kind of like um that that maybe surprised you how you reacted when you first met them, like whether it was starstruck or anything really. 
Well, getting into the Golden Horseshoe, uh, I got to work with Fulton Burley and yeah. Billy Boat, and uh, they were gods to me. And uh, I became very familiar with them, and uh, which was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the, uh, my, along with uh, Robert Preston and uh, Jerry Lewis, uh, uh, one of my heroes growing up, was Danny Kaye. Um, I just saw all of his films. I made tape recordings of all of his movies. I learned all yeah. of his patter songs. Wow. And then uh, in 1982, when I moved out here, I uh, showed up at my hotel room one day and um, we, we hadn't opened yet. And there was a script waiting for me on my bed in the hotel room. There was a script for the television special for the opening of Epcot Center. And uh, at the top of this script, it said Dreamfinder Park. And uh, I opened it up and I had a scene with Danny Kaye and Drew Barrymore. Uh, and is also, if you go on YouTube, you'll find uh, Danny Kaye and Dreamfinder uh, doing a, a scene together from that, uh, that grand opening special. Um, so I got to meet Danny Kaye, um, who disappointed. Oh. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, yeah. by this time, he he was uh, he wasn't a very patient man, oh, or a very a very nice man. Yeah. Um, so I got to play a scene with him. Yeah. But um, it, basically, it, the experience was uh, disappointing. Um, don't meet your hero situation. Well, yeah, <laughs> and and that is a common because, and that's any great point because. There, I, I've had a few of those myself, and it's kind of like, you know, it's actually more of, of a surprise to me when I do meet a celebrity, and they're just wonderful people. They're just mm -hmm. they're sweet, they're kind, generous, and, and and they're hospitable, and and because at this point, I've met I've met a few, and it's kind of like, you know narcissism uh kind of is just a thing in hollywood and 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 that community and and sometimes people don't really care about you know hey this this person over here yeah yeah they're admiring me but you know they don't take the time to just be kind and generous but you know so i so you know i i think that's just something that's that's kind of uh i mean that I hate to say it's normal, but it kind of is normal. What do you think? Not man? all the time. I, I can tell you right now, Ron, you made my wife extremely happy. Yeah, well, no, no, obviously. <laughs> if Ron is the exception. In the Disney universe, it yeah. was you, like, to get to the chance to speak to you. When she heard you do the Dreamfinder voice, that little snippet you did, she literally started <laughs> crying. Yeah. And as she walked out the room, she was like, to me. No, and, and I'll tell you this, Ron is the exception because last night, you know, just booking these podcast things Rod automatically was like text me right back you know usually it's it's not that personal and and anyways ron all this yeah that's say. on me ron sorry so anyways um <laughs> happy to have you here go go yeah. barry so uh before i get to tara and tara has uh some uh fan questions that she's gonna ask ron please 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 tell me you have like a big shrine in your house of Dreamfinder and Figment stuff that you 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 know. Uh, eventually down the road, you'll have tours for people to come in and uh, see all the cool stuff you have. 
Sorry to disappoint you. Well, he does have video, so he can describe it at least. I've got. I, I've right, got he can tell us. Tell I have. Us. I have some stuff. Um, most of it's esoteric, rather esoteric. Uh, I love esoteric. Yeah, um, I've got. I I, I got the the Dreamfinder and Figment uh, statue. The um, uh, the the that they did the two hundred fifty dollar one. Uh, I've got one of those. And I've got um, I've got some artwork. Uh, I have a I have an animation cell that uh, Larry Nikolai, who designed attractions for Disney, did an animation cell of uh, me as a medicine pitchman. <laughs> um, he also he also did a sketch for me of um, a Dreamfinder and Figment on in our break room, where uh, Figment is sitting at the makeup mirror smoking a cigarette in in a wife beater shirt. And uh, the Dreamfinder is a ventriloquist dummy sitting on a the couch in the mirror. Um, <laughs> so no, uh, the best the, the best thing I had was when I did that uh, show at the 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 um, for D twenty three in nineteen in two thousand eleven. Um, I had Figment, uh, one of the Dreamfinders, had had, had managed to make off with a full Dreamfinder rig uh, back in the day. And he gave me Figment. I had a Figment puppet, um, which I've since uh, passed on. Uh, I gave it to Tony Baxter, as a matter of fact, as I, I wanted him to have him. Um, Fair enough. That's a good home. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. That's about it. Yeah. And right. I got the, the pin that's coming out, Ron, the 40th anniversary one. Oh, we're talking yeah. about it this year. Yeah, we're just talking about that. We're messenger. It's coming over this week. That's your next on your list. <laughs> That's your homework. Buy your pin. <laughs> Do you know about it? Uh, apparently not. Oh, wow, Annie. Go ahead. Apparently, it's the 40th anniversary of the ride this year. And oh, yeah. D23 There's... is putting out a pin. For, for you, for you. So <laughs> you heard it first it on sharing the magic. And, pigment and it's so cute. Yeah. Wait, hey, see if I screenshot here. Show. Can you guys see? There you it? go. Oh, that's lovely. Right? Yeah. That's so cute. It'll be up on my wall. I have a million pins. It's a real issue. Anyway, <laughs> on the next. <laughs> no, it's it's like. Oh, well, I don't want to be too obvious about this, but uh, the fact that this, a lot of the stuff that I have. Um, the uh, little plastic figures, what the, the, they're called, uh, the, the collector's figures. Um, a lot of the stuff that I have is stuff that fans have bought for me. And uh, so, it's, so yes, that was that was a lovely pin. <laughs> we'll buy it I'm for you. Hint, hint, we're going we're gonna to buy it for you. If you don't buy it I'm, for yourself, Ron, <laughs> we're going to buy I'm it not, just for you. I'm not a D23 member. We'll hunt down somebody who is and we'll mug them right, right in the street. We'll steal the pen and we'll God, give it to you. Matt, we better hide our cards. <laughs> Jeff's coming <laughs> for us. You have to wear your dream finder, finder outfit to mug somebody and then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's fine. We're like, Ron. Right. Yeah. Let's jump, over to, let's jump over to Tara. Tara, do you have some um, some questions? Yeah. Hey, Ron. Um, so this question is from Town Hardware One. They're asking, how did the Dreamfinder and Figment character help each other flourish? 
And do you think one could have really existed without the other? Oh, nice. I've never been asked that before. Uh, and, I, and I've been doing question, this for huh? 40 years. Um, the uh, one, well, since Dreamfinder created Figment um, in the first scene of the ride, no, Figment could not have existed without Dreamfinder, unless, of course, Figment imagined Dreamfinder, which he could do. So the answer is, uh, yeah, they guess they could exist independently of each other. Um, and the um, the characters were the two sides of they were like the human brain mm -hmm. in um, uh, 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 Cranium Command, in that there there was a left brain and a right brain, and Dreamfinder is the left brain. Um, he's the the studied, mature, controlled side of the of the mind, and Figment. Is the is the nine year old child having a birthday party side of the mind, so they're they're uh, they complement each other in that way, and uh, that's uh, I think that uh, I kept Figment alive uh, for myself especially by um, I would always uh, try and try and uh, mess up with myself. For example, when the guest would ask a question for Figment. That the answer would be obviously be no, I would have Figment say yes, and then I had to talk my way out of the situation. <laughs> um, but uh, that way, I kept Figment alive for me, and um, I think that uh, Figment, by getting the guests to, to by being able to play Figment as a different person from myself, um, Figment kept uh, kept me alive too. That's as good an answer as you're going to get. <laughs> that was a great answer. <laughs> Amazing answer. That's all. No, that's here. a great answer. <laughs> wow. Awesome. Thanks. That's beautiful. So, Ron, I think the only thing we didn't touch on before we wrap up here is you didn't talk about your Ron's Wild Rides on YouTube. Ah, yes. Um, a fellow named John uh, uh, Anderson, a wonderful guy. Uh, I did a couple of events for him and he got in touch with me and he said, listen, uh, you, would, you, would you like to do a show about um, about old attractions? I said, I don't want to do a show about old attractions. There's too many shows about old attractions already. Um, I said, uh, if, if I'm going to do a show on a podcast uh, like this, um, it should be about what I'm about. Follow your bliss. Uh, follow your heart, uh, make your dream come true. Oh. And so we we uh, interviewed about, um, I think we did about 15 interviews with various people that I knew personally or uh, some members of the uh, uh, Disney, uh, uh, <laughs> who are the famous people? Disney legends. Um, we had a couple of Disney legends. And... Um, they and I interviewed him. He, we we didn't do we we interviewed him for about an hour, hour and a half, and then we cut the things down to about thirty minutes. So wow. the focus was on making your dreams come true. How does that? How do you, you as a as a viewer make your dreams come true? Mm. And that's the that's the message for the for the piece. It's called Ron Schneider's Wild Rides. Um, you can find. Uh, Links from you can find me by the way on Facebook, and uh, if you if, if you sign on with me on Facebook, 
um, you'll find the links to uh, some of the shows there. Uh, they're, they're out there floating around YouTube. If you do a search for Ron Schneider's Wild Rides, you'll find the shows. They're out there. And um, we uh, interviewed uh, a, a bunch of famous people and some not so famous people that I knew from working at Universal and uh, Disneyland. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's that's there. Thank you for remember remind, reminding Absolutely. me. Absolutely. We want to make sure we plug it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. Go out and see it. Absolutely. And I'm. I'm getting, I'm getting into Jeff mode. I'm like, oh, I want to know so bad. Like, talking about making your dreams come true. I'm like, you could do like two hours of a podcast just mm-hmm. on that. You really could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Should I? Should I not ask? I want. I want to know. Like, you know, I want to know. So. Ron, do you have anything that's like part your parting shots as far as is there anything that when it comes to your life, your story? You know, when you think about people that are kind of on this precipice, like they're they're in this moment where they're thinking through I. I have, I, you know, I, I have students that are kind of in this spot. They don't know what, what their future is going to look like. They don't know what, you know, should I follow my dreams or should I just play it safe? Should I, should I, you know, go through the motions or should I follow my heart? And, you know, when I hear your story, when I hear you talk about these things, and you and you're not just the only one, it's it's kind of a theme here on sharing the magic. You know, when we interview people, there's a lot of people that, you know, the common theme is like, and it probably comes from Walt. It's like, what does it look like to really follow your dreams? What does it look like to really follow your heart? And Gosh, I just wish I just we could do a we could just do podcast after podcast just of that. But you know, Ron, do you have anything to maybe just you don't have to we want to be respectful of your time and your energy, but uh do you have anything just to say about your own story and 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 all those things? You 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 said the phrase make your dreams come true. And I just think that's just a wonderful like kind of note to end on the the full quote is you're never given a dream without being given the power to make it true you may you may have to work for it however now that uh that's that's all that is important it's not just follow your dreams it's not just you know live your fantasy yeah because um you like you say you don't you don't know where your life's going to lead you Mm-hmm. But what you uh, and but it's not. There's not only two choices of follow your dream or don't follow your dream. The way that I got where I wound up, you know, I, I wound up on the stage of the Golden Horseshoe Review. When you think about it, that's just one show with one guy doing the part. And I then I picked that show. And 10 years later, bam, I got it. That's amazing. Well, it's because of the ten years, the ten years I had in the interim, where I became I it was a wardrobe issue. I worked with wild animals. I was a tour guide. I took, I chose practical steps that carried me in the general direction that I wanted to go. 
that I was I was very practical in it. I didn't say say you know, um, I, I didn't I didn't say okay I'm just going to sit around and wait to audition for the Golden Horseshoe. No, I said this this job is something like that. This job was I I would go nuts doing that. I, I could be happy being a Universal Studios tour guide, and that'll take me one step far, further. Um, and that's true uh, since we. The problem with wanting to make your dreams come true is there's only one place you can do that, and that's the real world. Yeah, you have to do it in the, in the real world, and so you have to compromise without compromising, and you have to follow your follow your bliss. Uh, that's why I put it that way in the in the show. Yeah, is to I, follow your bliss. I know. For it, yeah. I just think that's a wonderful concept. It's like you can sit there, you know. You, you used the term, I think, earlier, like esoteric, right? Like you can be in the clouds and just mm-hmm. dream, 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 dream. And, uh, you know, nothing will ever happen. Or you can just sit there and get hyper-focused and, you know, boots to ground. And you just, you, you, you do, you, you make it through the day, you know, you pay your bills on time. But there, there's sort of a both and thing that I think that is just it's so akin to Walt Disney. It's so it's, it's kind of why we talk about sharing the magic. I just think mm-hmm. that is kind of what, you know, part of sharing the magic is, you know, it's not just about dreaming, you know, but it is. It's like you should dream. You should have these big like these these overarching, you know, um, dreams and goals for your life and 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 but you should also do the work do the hard work of making those dreams come true and i think i think you know ron like when i when i think of your life when i think of you know the message that you've kind of talked about today i feel like you bring those two things together like very very well the um well one of the things that i've realized late in life is about Walt Disney. Um, Walt was this guy from the Midwest who, and I think the secret for his success is whatever he turned his head towards, he tried to improve it. He, he, he made, he you no know, people who did cartoons back in his day, uh, they were very primitive, but he said, no, we can make this better. We can give these characters more of a physiognomy. We can make them move in more life, 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 life way. So he, had, he completely revolutionized and animation. Um, he did the same thing with live action films. He did the same thing with amusement parks. Look at what they had for amusement parks before he came along. Um, and that's the secret of Walt Disney is that he just, whatever you handed him, he found something in it that he could improve, that he could plus. And that's the secret to success, I think, in any field. Well, including your life. <laughs> like that's, you know, Doing my research on you, I feel like you've taken that narrative, you've taken that pattern, and you've applied it to your own life. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. That is a beautiful ha- way to end the yeah, episode. Yeah, well, happy. So, Ron, Ron, ha- the whole full circle. <laughs> I know. Just Ron, happy to have you, my friend. It's just it's been wonderful having you here, and you know we're. Yeah, thank thank you for putting up with my uh, my deep probing questions. But sometimes I, you know, there's there's these things I'm like, I gotta know, I gotta know, I have to know. Jeff's always gotta know, and it's always great what comes out of it. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on, Ron. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. We'll have to have you on again. Absolutely. I think Crystal will literally disown all of us and divorce Matt if we don't. So for the sake of his marriage, we definitely have to have you back on. Um, Again, for everyone listening, um, make sure you go on YouTube and you watch the, what is it? The many adventures of Brother Adventures. The thrilling adventures of Paul Rosenhead. We'll get that right. If you right. want to dive further into the world of imagination with Ron, you can check out the YouTube channel Ron's Wild Rides, where he interviews the magic makers and entertainers alike. Also, check out his book, Dreamers to Dream Fighter, A Life of Lessons Learned in 40 Years Behind the Name Tag. You will cry, you will laugh. It's amazing. I definitely recommend the Audible version because then you get to, like he said, listen to him talk for nine hours straight. It's amazing. What more could you want? It puts me right to sleep. Listen, no. Oh, puts you no. to sleep. Makes us all <laughs> That's it's all tough. we need. <laughs> it works for everybody. It's listen, it does something different to everyone. Um, and of course, we want to thank all of you for turning into another episode of Sharing the Magic. As always, please hit that follow button to stay up to date on the latest episodes and tell your friends to tune in wherever they listen to awesome podcasts like this one. You guys can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Sharing the Magic Pod. Until next time, keep sharing the magic. Thank you, guys. This was wonderful. I had a terrific time. We are not an affiliate of the Walt Disney Company, nor do we speak for the brand or the company. Any and all Disney audio clips, likeness, and characters are their property and theirs alone.